Welcome to the Vegas Gang Podcast for September 24th, 2009. Uh, let me go around the table and introduce my guys. Jeff Simpson from the Las Vegas Sun and In Business Las Vegas. Welcome, Jeff. Good afternoon, guys. Chuck S. Monster from VegasTripping.com. What's happening, Chuck? Not all that much. Glad and to be here. Yeah, good. I'm glad you're here, too. And welcoming back, Dr. Dave Schwartz, our returning champion from <laughs> UNL Center for Gaming Research. Hey, Dave. Hey there. How's it going? Good. We missed you last time, so we're glad you're back. And I missed yeah, He's you like guys. the Ken Jennings of the <laughs> Vegas gang. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm Hunter, and you can find me at RateVegas.com. And before we jump in, I'm reminding you once again that Vegas Podcast of Palooza is October 17th in the Lounge at the Palms, 4 p.m. Check your local listings. Um, if you go to VegasPodcastofPalooza.com, you get the details. Um, our guest will be uh, Mr. Alan Feldman of MGM Mirage. And um, any uh, listeners that may have questions for Alan, I can't guarantee that they'll get asked, but if you have Anything you're interested in, uh, feel free to leave them in the comments, and um, we will, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe your question will get asked. Uh, never know. And it's going to be fun. So anybody that can come, I certainly uh, encourage you to do so. It'll be a good time. Moving on. Um, there's two stories that are not really related, but are sort of thematically similar, and. Uh, Let's start with Harrah's and Planet Hollywood. Um, last week, we saw some rumblings that uh, Harrah's was buying Planet Hollywood debt. Um, Planet Hollywood, just like everybody else, has uh, been having a, a tough time. And, um, you know, it, it appears that uh, Harrah's may be uh, trying to, um, you know, pick up uh, – pick up a property on the cheap perhaps or maybe they're just making an investment we don't know we'll see what happens but i'm you know i'm curious what uh, what you guys think about this potential acquisition now of course um in terms of geography uh harris owns properties uh, directly adjacent to planet hollywood so you know you uh you think i can i can imagine how that would be a, a positive but a lot of what i read online um people don't seem too excited about about this idea, and it seems more more directed towards consolidation in general than Harris specifically. Um, I think um, people are were kind of hoping to get more of the deconsolidation than the consolidation. Does do does anybody agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I think there's definitely some merit to the argument that we don't need, you know, Harris doesn't need another property in Las Vegas. They're already way overexposed here as it is. You know, I don't think they need another property, and it's just hard to say what it's, you know, what kind of uh, positives it would generate for the company. Besides, it's, you know, it would be getting a property pretty cheap that's going to be a recently renovated one. But, you know, if you think about it, I was just, you know, trying to do the geography in my head. If they bought Planet Hollywood, is it true that everything – South of Treasure Island would be either beside the Tropicana would be either MGM or um, Harris. Well, other than the Venetian, I guess if you oh, consider yeah. that, yeah. So yeah, uh, and and aside and aside from the Casino Royale, it would oh yeah, Lardies. But that's that true. And the Cosmo, if that right. opens. <laughs> but still, you know, that's oh, not. Yeah. A, that you know, I think there would there would be some regulatory concern over that, and I think there would also be some regulatory concern over you know the amount of debt that that companies have. And I think they you know one regulator might regulator might say, hey, you guys are writing an awful lot of paper here. How's that going to affect your financial stability? I think Dave's exactly right. The regulators would question any more piling on of debt for Harris, but I doubt that they would. You know, their typical, their mantra is pretty much, you know, you guys are the businessmen, you're the ones who are putting your billions at risk. You know, I mean, they, until they actually do it and actually say no to a transaction. I mean, I, I've i talked to almost every regulator about, you know, looking back at some of the, you know, their approvals of these uh, private equity deals. And they all look back and, you know, there isn't a single regulator who says, Oh, maybe we shouldn't have done it. They all say, you know, it was the best decision at the time. Uh, so, 
until one of those reg- regulators actually votes against a deal, I don't think that they actually would block it. I think that um, Harris is a uh, you know this is an opportuni- opportunistic play. Um, Hunter, you said Harris or, or Planet Hollywood is like everybody else. I would say that they're really worse off probably than most other operators in that it's a single op single property entity um they already you know they were fairly highly leveraged they used their cash flow from the good years um the, in the middle of the decade to do um to do the renovations that were needed to you know sort of change the vestiges of Aladdin into planet hollywood they also have a big condo tower and supposedly a second to sell um, that's not an easy thing. So I think, you know, and, and, it, and it's a property that's already burdened with that sort of crazy retail surrounding the casino, parking on the other side of retail, um, very poor ingress and egress from Las Vegas Boulevard, main entrance is on Harmon. Um, there's just so many um, problems with that property that just are uncorrectable. Um, so, you know, the Planet Hollywood, I would say, um, aside from having, you know, a property that's less than a decade old, um, isn't in isn't in as good a shape as as uh, many of the competitors, even though they've all had their well publicized problems. Um, I think for Harris, this is an opportunistic purchase, much like Carl Icahn's series have been. Um, if they are able to, if Planet Hollywood were to go bankrupt and um they and they own debt it puts them in a very strong position to be able to buy for um a very low price and uh so you know you've seen some of that in uh in New Jersey and certainly in Las Vegas in the past so i don't know that i'd criticize Harris i think when you look at their properties they have Caesar's Palace it's head and shoulders above everything else their next level would be Paris and um, Rio. Um, they've really let both those properties uh, deteriorate, I would say. Um, their properties below that, um, Harrah's and uh, Bally's, um, Flamingo, Imperial Palace, even lower. I think that um, Planet Hollywood probably would, you know, come in, you know, right at the, you know, certainly below Caesar's Palace, but you know, right in there with their next best properties. It's not that good of a property, but the Harrow's properties just aren't that good. And and there's really, you know, that, that middle tier of properties in Las Vegas um, right now, the value-oriented properties are under pressure, but, um, you know, maybe if times ever get good again, that they'll be in a better situation. So if they can buy the place for pennies on the dollar, very few pennies, yeah, I think it's a good deal for Harris, but if they have to pay too much, I think you know it wouldn't be. But I I don't think that's their goal. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm sure that the view from the accounting department at Harris, you know, that this sounds like a great idea. Personally, though, I mean, just on a totally personal basis, uh, I would be one of those people that would rather see more deconsolidation than than you know reconsolidation. Uh, just I know- for competition's sake. For the sake of competition, I mean, I, I, other people have other people far smarter than I have said this, but you know, it, it the strip seems to do best when there are a lot of smart people all trying to kill each other, um, and <laughs> I would like to see more of that. I, you know, just bare knuckled uh, fighting, and I think it's great for it's fun to watch and it's good for consumers, and I think you get more interesting innovation. And I sort of feel like this consolidation experiment was has been tried and you know you could argue the merits of the six of the successes um but uh, i think i would like to see less of this consolidation and i would be uh i would hope that this doesn't actually end up going through but we'll see i definitely know people that um sort of like to stay at planet hollywood now and have found that they can get some good values and it's a little bit different than some of the other offerings and that are a little bit dismayed with the idea of them becoming a total rewards property hunter the thing the thing that really fascinates me about this is how uh it seems like it, it vindicates 
uh, Robert Earl to a degree and makes us all who are very critical of the whole Buddy. Hollywood thing, you know, look look a little uh, little stupid. <laughs> they have managed to turn the the unlovable Aladdin into you know a place that is competing with the Mirage, you know, to a degree. It's competing with the Mirage. It's competing with Paris next door, you know, and all of Harris properties, and even, you know, MGM, Grant, they've turned that very ugly, very peculiar building into a place that people actually like to go. You know, people know the restaurants there now. You know, they've built up a lot of goodwill, it seems like, within the tourist community, people who like going to Planet Hollywood. Is that really true? I mean, is that what the folks are are saying to you guys? I'm hearing that. Yeah, yeah, people like going there. And you've got to wonder. Yeah, you you got to wonder how much longer that would last if it was just one of what seven properties. I honestly you know, hear that often. Yeah. People really like people really like what they've done at Planet Hollywood. They like the casino. They like the um, they say that they get pretty solid offers. They like the location. It's they like the public sex and the and the readily available <laughs> drugs in the nightclub. Uh, I haven't heard that personally, but um, you know, I mean, just on, honestly, I I, uh, I do hear people that have that have a lot of positive stories to tell about their stays at Planet Hollywood. They sort of like it's independent. I have more of a skeptical sort of casino business. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, the the place has done a lot of sort of you know tried a bunch of things on the entertainment front. I'm not really sure how many tickets they really sell at full price. Um, for Peep Show, they bring in some, you know, some concerts. It seems like, you know, they're trying to be, you know, sort of hip and younger-oriented, um, young people-oriented, but I'm not sure that they really have the same pizzazz as uh, maybe some of the better clubs and some of the bigger resorts, and certainly the Hard Rock and Palms, um, I think, still probably trump the place. And and the young people don't have the gambling money or the restaurant money that the that the you know the Bellagios and the and the and the nicer properties get, and and so I would like you know when you compare it to Mirage and those other places, I'd like to you know sort of see the tracking of their you know average daily room rates, what's their you know win per slot machine, win per table game position. Um, I'm very skeptical that Planet Hollywood competes on any of those fronts with Mirage or any better properties. It may compete with, you know, with Bally's and with um, Jeff, it's m- funny maybe you say Flamingo. That. Not but not, uh, uh, two weeks ago, I crunched a bunch of numbers on weekend room rates going from uh, probably about two weeks ago all the way to the middle of November, and I dumped this stuff all into a spreadsheet. I, did, I picked four properties, the same ones which I had done a few months earlier. It was Mirage, Planet Hollywood, uh, the Flamingo, and Bellagio, and uh, basically just did a lot of mathematics to average out what the average uh, room rate you'd pay for a three- or four-day weekend, and then plotted them all on a graph. And I was surprised to see that, you know, Bellagio, of course, is up in the top, but Planet Hollywood and Mirage, for the most part, are kind of like battling their room rates on a similar sort of track above the Flamingo, as expected. But, you know, it's like Planet Hollywood is sort of like sometimes they shave a little more off top of the Mirage, sometimes they shave a little bit less, you know, but it seems like they're they're really kind of competing head-to-head in terms of the room rates themselves. Now, these are rates, Chuck, that you're getting from, you know, Orbit. Scraped off their website. Or, okay. Scraped so these are they're reported SEC, they're in their SEC reports. These aren't the average daily room rates that they're reporting that they get. These are sort of rates that are advertised. Advertised rates, yeah. This is, you know, intended more, you know, for people who are planning a trip as opposed right. to, you know, a postmortem of how what was in the till at the end of the day. And, and I think that those numbers have some value. I think that, you know, typically at the end of a quarter, um, other factors that affect room rates are, you know, the kind of convec- convention bookings they had, how many rooms are closed down or um, available during that time period, but you know, I mean, that's a. It, it, it certainly is one important factor. So, and it may be that Planet Hollywood rooms are doing 
better than I had thought. Um, so I, that's I interesting. Think, Jeff, I don't necessarily disagree with what you said in as much as um, I definitely agree that the place is um, not as hip as it thinks it is. Um, I actually uh, – some listeners may recall that I got into a trouble with – CEO over that exact issue when they first opened. Uh, my opinion on that hasn't changed. I think they uh, think that they're hipper than they are, though I do think that they've gotten a lot of mileage out of Holly Madison. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think when I'm saying that people are comparing it favorably, I'm talking about people on the street, um, actual people that are visiting. I obviously, I'm not privy to their financials, but I would not be surprised if they are nowhere near as strong as uh, Mirage. When you actually look at the numbers, I, I think what you can credit them for is doing a lot with sort of a very small budget in terms of like the the outside of their property, you know, covering the thing in LED boards. I mean, it's you know, it's the kind of a design, you know, the design element that would make you know Steve Wynn's head spin around, but <laughs> but it attracts it attracts attention, and you know, it's sort of in the middle of. You know, a couple quiet places, you know, Paris across the street from Bellagio, but until city center opens. And that's one thing is that it's going to be dead center strip um, if city center has the kind of impact that some folks think it will. Um, So, you know, it certainly is well situated. And and you mentioned before, Hunter, because it's next to Harris, um, there is a real estate maxim that the most valuable real estate is the real estate that's next to the real estate you own. So for Harris, it certainly is um, very, you know, more valuable for Harris than almost anyone else. Yeah. Well, we'll see how it plays out. Um, you know, this could be quite an extended uh, amount of time before anything significant happens, but definitely interesting to see them make those moves. Um, continuing on the M&A front in the um, always a bridesmaid, never a bride category, um, Penn National Gaming has been supposedly kicking the tires at Fontainebleau, the um, unfinished project uh, north of uh, north of the Riviera. Um, the slant on the reporting on this was, uh, sure, they've been asking questions, but no one really expects them to do a deal. <laughs> um, Jeff, you've probably seen these stories. Do you agree with that sentiment? Well, it was interesting. That story was broken, the original story, and um, by uh, Alexandra Burzon, the former Sun reporter who's now covering the casino business for the as a Pulitzer Prize winning Sun reporter who's now covering the casino business for the Wall Street Journal. And uh, she did a story saying they're the company that's um, Penn National is in the active negotiations to buy the property. Then Howard Stutz from the RJ followed a couple of days later saying people in the business, and he's talking about Wall Street analysts, um, don't expect Penn State to be a buyer, that they're just, you know, they were kicking the tires, but um, along with others, and they don't expect the deal to happen. You know, Penn National has been quite a uh, um, tire kicker over the last year, um, and I think that, um, you know, they, everybody th- seems to think that they are really looking for a great buy, and it may turn out when you look at some of the buys that have been had. National, um, yeah, you know, it's gotten to the point where I'm totally sick of hearing about them looking at casinos. It seems like they're just total looky-loos. And it's yeah. like, I just want to say, you know, don't come back on the lot unless you want to go home in a new car. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, and now, even if they were to buy the Bellagio for $50 million and <laughs> run it, make it the best casino ever in the history of the world it still couldn't live up to expectations now that they've drawn this out so long it's like yeah. you know guys you, you should have done this six months ago or you know or a year ago and it's, it's getting kind of ridiculous now well it's hard for me to take them seriously at this point at least in terms of an acquisition i mean and, and you would think logic would suggest that the good the period for the best deals has passed i mean it seemed like that sort of golden moment where people were so desperate for cash or whatever to do a deal, maybe is easing. I, I mean, I'm wondering if they lost their opportunity. The, the dollar amount here is the big problem because the the amount it will take to finish construction is 
estimated somewhere between $1.3, $1.7 billion. And taking care of the unpaid mechanics, or, I mean, uh, c contractors and stuff, that's, you're talking about another half billion, I think, or more. And so a $2 billion property, anything that was worth three or $4 billion now, I mean, a couple of years ago, is probably worth $2 billion now. So these Wall Street people are just are saying it, it's, it will be worth less than, than it would take to finish building it. And that's the problem is, you know, if it's going to take $2 billion or more and it will be worth less than that, it just isn't a smart proposition for anyone. Um, the, the key will be someone who can actually put the squeeze to the creditors and buy it for a low enough price so that it pencils out, you know, whatever it will cost to buy and build still leaves potential for, you know, some value. Um, so, you know, it may be quite some time uh, before we see somebody actually do a deal. Could it yeah. potentially be that the creditors who sort of forced this situation by cutting off the funding might have shot themselves in the foot completely and be left holding a debt that nobody wants? Absolutely, it could. I mean, they also, you know, they also have the option of pursuing, you know, what Deutsche Bank did with Cosmopolitan. That would probably take a more conciliatory relationship with the SOFRs, um, with the SOFRs doing what um, the, the uh, Canadian guy did at Cosmopolitan, Eichner, and just walking away. If, if the SOFRs were willing to walk away, I, I, I would, wouldn't be surprised if the creditors said, all right, now we will refund uh, or you know, go ahead and fund the fin finished construction, and then we'll try and sell. Just like, you know, and, and I think that's what everyone thinks Cosmopolitan wants to do as well. Um, you know, open a product, you know, prove its value, and then sell it to the likely buyer, hopefully a rejuvenated MGM Mirage. I think that the same thing would be true with Cosmo, with uh, Fontainebleau. Yeah. I mean, that big blue Hulkin thing is going to be probably sitting there for the foreseeable future. Which is, of course, unfortunate. Well, uh, I uh, <clears throat> if Penn National buys the place, then um, I'll be pretty uh, surprised. Anything's possible, I guess. But uh, be interesting to see what happens. Um, I'm going to move away from Las Vegas, and actually, Chuck, I want to ask you about this story because it's based on something that you wrote, and it's um, about uh, Stanley Ho and his company in Macau. So there are sort of some rumors swirling about his situation. Do you want to elaborate on what those are? Yeah, about uh, six or so weeks ago, Stanley Ho suffered a fall, and uh, he fell down. He's like 87, 88 years old, and uh, he had a blood clot in his brain, and he went into the uh, intensive care at the Adventist Hospital in Hong Kong uh, for uh, a while. Uh, we received a report from from a couple of people who are in the biz in Macau saying that Mr. Ho has passed away, Dr. Ho, excuse me, uh, and that his death was being held until after the elections, which took place over the weekend. Uh, we have, of course, you know, no confirmation on this, of course, since that time. You know, it's been a week or so. We have not heard anything about Mr. Ho uh, passing away. Also, SJM just opened uh, La Arc, which is right across the street from um, kind of tucked behind uh, Star World and Wynn Macau uh, just two days ago. So it probably would not have been a good time to announce his death there. And he was not at the opening, as, as I have heard, as expected. But he is gravely ill. Uh, whether or not he's actually dead or he's going to be dead, it is probably a really good chance. Uh, you know, that, that Dr. Ho will, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a big uh, change in the Macau gaming industry. He is an icon. He is, his his influence and reach, you know, goes from, from China to New Jersey and farther. Uh, North Korea. So to, to, yeah, to, yeah, to see how, uh, 
you know, to see how this is all going to play out, you know, he has a very huge family. He's had four wives and 16 or 20 children by different ones, and and they all are, are uh, kind of crazy. They, they, they're all going to want a piece, piece of the action here. But the company, SJM, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly, but I'm sure there is a specific secession order already in place there for what would happen in the case in the event of Dr. Ho's passing. So uh, how this is going to shake out, you know, I, once he is no longer in control of SJM, I imagine there's going to be a lot of lateral movement of things happening and changing uh, once somebody who gets all that power to, to control that huge block of casinos gets, uh, you know, their hands on the reins. Who that's going to be, I'm not exactly sure. Right. So, no, a couple of his children have ha- are, are in joint ventures with other companies um, for gaming in Macau, most notably Lawrence and Pansy. Um, now, one angle that I'm interested in is um, New Jersey has looked at the relationship between Pansy Ho and MGM Mirage and has decided – Get to give it additional scrutiny. Um, let, you know, this, how? Let's hypothesize here for a minute. If Pansy was to ascend to um, the, the top spot at SGM, how would that impact MGM Mirage and their relationship for MGM Mirage Macau? Or MGM well, I mean, uh, my guess would be, uh, you know, she would have to leave her position at MGM Grand Paradise, um, and basically leave one company and leak it to another one. You know, I don't well, cer- I don't certainly certainly if she was to stay as part of the 50-50 joint venture between her company and MGM Mirage, she couldn't if she also assumed the mantle at SGM, SGM's operations are way more um troubled, I'm sure, according to our and New Jersey regulators than were her operations. Uh, You know, Stanley Ho has all kinds of crazy partnerships with all kinds of questionable folks, and I think that that would would, you couldn't own SGM and uh, and an American regulated casino company. Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably the bottom line, right? I mean, <laughs> from everything that I've read about SGM, the way you put it was um, very uh, <laughs> was uh, yeah. very collegial. Um, <laughs> it sounds like um, you know there are a lot of uh, relationships there that could would be problematic for American regulators. Well, I mean, no matter what happens, um, it, it as you said, Chuck, it would you know be a major event uh, in that in that market. Um, and uh, could have some pretty f- wide-ranging uh, repercussions depending on. I was, who I, was, the... I was thinking the other day, Hunter, about how to compare Stanley Ho in, in American terms, American casino industry titan terms. I'm like, well, you know, he's sort of a contemporary of Kerkorian. Uh, he's got the ear of the public, like like Steve Wynn. Uh, He's a thug, kind of like Bugsy Siegel, you know. So he's like, you take all of these people that we know and and, and have studied, and you wrap them all up into one, and you let this one guy have a monopoly. It's really impossible to underestimate the strength and the gravity of his contribution and, you know, the wealth that he has generated for himself and his company through the Macau operation. It's just truly insane. Well, I think you can say one thing for sure, is that because he was a monopolist, he and, and it's one of the problems with monopolies, um, is that they really don't reward um, and because there's, there's no competition. And so, you know, when... Before the um, Macau government opened up the casino licenses um, to outside ownership, he had no incentive to build nice, new, modern casinos. I mean, he had the Lisboa and then a yeah. you know uh, a, you know a dozen of these other junky little places. And, that was the nicest place in town. <laughs> right, right, and and so. Um, you know, once it was opened up, now, but you so he didn't 
you know, he wasn't going to throw his money away. He had a monopoly. He was making money hand over fist. And, he, I, you know, he didn't really see the need to, you know, to put any more money into his casinos. Um, folks over there were perfectly happy to gamble in that environment. But what what happened was, and I think this is, enough, this is a sort of maybe unappreciated element of Stanley Ho, is that he may have wondered, he may have, you know, underestimated how successful the new competitors would be, you know, and, and we're talking about Las Vegas Sands um, because they were the first in to open, but they were so spectacularly successful, it didn't take Stanley Ho long to say, uh-oh, we got to start investing and expanding as well. So by the time Wynn opened, Stanley was already well underway building his new Grand Lisboa and, and other ventures. Um, and he, you know, he, he made the deal to sell Pansy and MGM a sub concession. Um, that was a couple hundred million bucks. Um, he, you know, I think you can say that, you know, he wasn't, you know, he isn't a guy who's a designer um, like Wynn. He's not, you know, um, he's, He's not a marketing genius like Gary Loveman. Uh, but what he did do um, was manage to keep a monopoly for, I think it was like at least three decades or about three decades or more. And, and um, you know, and without having the government, you know, crack down and say no more gambling, um, which was certainly a possibility when Macau reverted to SAR, you know, to become a Chinese um, special autonomous region. Um, you know, I mean, they, there was so much trouble before that changeover that I think it wouldn't have been all that surprising. But, um, you know, he's adapted and, uh, you know, it was really, you know, one of the key people in sort of the transformation of, of the regime. Um, so I think you have to give him some credit for that. Oh, no doubt. I mean, uh, he's a no matter how colorful he is, he's had an immense amount of success, and uh, he's got. Um, a, will have a long-lasting legacy, I'm sure. And you know, hopefully, uh, these rumors are not true, and he will have uh, a few more years in him to uh, to do whatever's next. But I don't know. What's Chuck? I mean, since since uh, it seems like it would be hard to keep the death of a major figure like that in that region quiet for this long. Yeah. I mean, so who knows? It's China after all. Yeah. Okay. Um, Dave, you had a couple stories on your uh, blog this week that were interesting. Um, I was hoping we could touch on a couple of them um, sort of uh, in succession here. One of them was about um, marketing on the strip, specifically at uh, Monte Carlo at the Dragon Noodle Company. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that was? What that is? Yeah, um, this is kind of this is kind of a funny, kind of quirky thing, and I think it's pretty cool. Basically, what they did is they there's the Dragon Noodle Company um, in Monte Carlo, and I've kind of said it. You know, it seems to be a pretty solid restaurant and a pretty unexceptional unexceptional casino that most people tend to overlook. So I think they had a little problem with well, how do we get people to come to this restaurant? And the answer was, we spend 800 bucks for four costumes, and we dress up the waitresses like Japanese cartoon figures, okay, which apparently is a pretty big subculture out there, that people who are into it are really, really into it. And it seems to have been somewhat successful in getting them that, the exposure, you know, and definitely I don't think we would have been talking about the Chinese restaurant at Monte Carlo if they hadn't have done that. Right. It's interesting. I mean, yeah, I think you talk in your post a little bit about, you know, thinking that, it, you know, it's an interesting thing and hoping that we'll see some more creative uh, innovation. Yeah. It is a way but to make a – Does ahead. it seem like the wrong property to you guys? It's uh, hard to say what the right property would be, you know, and, and it's – you know, at least, they're, at least they're trying something different. You know, you've got you to give them credit, especially when they've got the huge, you know, behemoth of City Center opening up in a couple months – which is definitely, you know, they're they're not going to get the people who want the newest and glitziest stuff. I think it, at least it's something, and you know, but I don't I don't even know where that would be a good fit. You know, maybe at one point when they have the Star Trek experience at the Hilton, but probably not anymore. I, I think that's a good point, Dave. Is that the proximity to City Center 
might be uh, the redeeming factor. I guess I was thinking, I, I, my, and this is just based on, you know, I read uh, Brendan Bueller from The Sun did a story about that place, and I, I, I guess I was, when I read that story, I was initially thinking, this seems more like, it seems like something for folks in their teens and 20s, and, you know, now the story says that there's even older people, and, you know, I haven't, and and I I don't move in the same places, I guess, but I certainly haven't seen too many people in their 40s and 50s um, dressed in anime costumes, but, but, you know, maybe Hard Rock, Palms, you know, those kind of venues um, that are already appealing to young people, even Planet Hollywood, um, but I just... Um, I'm just questioning, I, I, and, and I've said this before about the Diablos on the front of Monte Carlo. You know, Monte Carlo to me has always had sort of like a, a quiet, relatively classy, calm, um, you know, a, you know, sort of interior. It certainly is designed, and they stick that black thing on the front of it, which I think is a big eyesore, and then. You know, now maybe it's fun and it's hip and it re-energizes the property, and I'm sure that's what they were trying to do. But to me, that's already a clash. And then this this thing, it just seems to clash even more to me. And I don't know what you think about that, Dave, but to me, and and, and those guys are experts. They know what they're doing. But it just, you know, you, you wonder when you get, you know, you have like maybe their old customers are going to be a bunch of old people. Are they going to be irritated with this new kind of stuff? They, you know, they may not even like if I was if I was going past there, I wouldn't even know what it, you know, what it was. I would just say, hmm, there's people in costumes. That's interesting. I think, you know, I was just doing some thinking about this, and I've got a, an article in the business press that'll be coming out in a couple of weeks along these lines. And basically, you know, you figure there's 35 to 40 million people coming to Vegas a year. If you have something that attracts even one percent of them, that is going to get you about a thousand, at least a thousand people a day. Yeah, that's you know, three four hundred thousand a year. That's right. Yeah. So, it's it seems like it's it's a good idea. I think this is where where the strip has to go in a sense is to not just try to be everything to everybody and have this kind of bland middle of the road stuff. I think it's good to have things that are on the edges. And you know, I think in a way, I, I hadn't thought about hard rock, but I think in a way with their whole rock and roll decadence thing, that might be the place for the cool kids. And this could be the place for the kids who aren't so cool. You know, <laughs> that, you know what? That's a great point. I like because it. there are a lot of us out there. <laughs> it's a really interesting you know thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's funny is before Dragon Noodle opened, they had some um, part of the wrap that was on the building or on the um, space said something like, um, "Gosh, I'm trying to remember exactly what the phrase was now," but it was it was taken by some to sort of be a slam at Asian culture. Uh, but I mean, I think it was meant to be a joke. People, yeah. I know several people that couldn't figure out if it was either a really stupid person that put it up that was very insensitive, or whether it was supposed to be funny. So I, you know, I wonder how much that kind of misunderstanding can play into something like this. People may, some people may be like really not get it. <laughs> yeah, and it's you know, and it's really it seems like it's just such a small investment to to do this. It's like, hey, why you know, at least try something different. Don't just have these monosyllabic steakhouses and nightclubs and you know it seems like that is kind of when you're doing that and you're finding these things that are perfectly calibrated to target audience and target audiences and stuff and that are done by committee you, you lose some some vibrancy and i think this yeah. is cool and maybe you know maybe maybe it'll be lousy maybe maybe it'll be great but i'm really glad they're doing something different and i think this also gives the lie to the myth out there that well Big companies can't be innovative. You know, we've seen them do a lot of innovative stuff, and this is a great example that hey, if you've got more than one lounge on your property, and if you've got more, you know, if you've got more than one property, what do you care if one guy wants to dress his waitresses up like Japanese cartoons? You know, other ones. I think, will, I, do it. I think you. I think you make a great point, Dave. I think. I think that micro micro marketing thing, sort of going for very sli slim slivers, is a way to, you know, especially because properties have so many outlets, you know, a dozen restaurants, six clubs, you know, 4,000 rooms, a couple pools. So, yeah, they can afford to do that, I think, with some of those kind of things, and, and, and you make a good point. Um, I'm not sure, 
you know, I, I wonder, does that mean that we're going to end up with uh, some, you know, a Magic the Gathering club someplace? <laughs> it might. Some, uh, some role-playing, some other role-playing game type type features at other properties. I mean, you know, um, I, I, I'll be eager to see if it succeeds, if that thing's there in a year or two. But um, I, I'll give them credit for, uh, for the uh, courage to try it. Hey, I'd love to see a, a D&D or AD&D, uh, whatever, <laughs> club. You can come in and roll percentage and hit points and all that. And call find, some way to, find some way to make a game, a casino game out of it. Yeah, I, isn't that kind of what, what, what Total Rewards is like, where you move up in levels the more you do and you gain points? Yeah. I'm, you know what? There, there may be some patent issues there. Yeah, maybe that's where it came from. They should call uh, whoever uh, invented Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, you had another story on your blog about um, – declining gaming ta taxes nationwide. And as you said, it's hardly breaking news to anyone who follows this stuff regularly. But um, just real quickly, uh, is there, are there any takeaways from this that are interesting or important that we should, um, that people should be aware of? Yeah. Um, gambling is, gr is still growing around the country. I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I do think that it's a little bit regrettable that they only want to use gambling to fix um, gaps in the budget, because I think you're always going to have gaps in the budget, no matter what you do. Even if, even if everybody had 10 video poker machines inside their kitchen, you'd still have the gaps in the budget. I mean, it's just, I, I, I don't know of too many examples where governments have spent less over time. So it seems, you know, at least in my you know, own interpretation, it would be better if states just said, hey, we think people should be allowed to gamble. And let's legalize it. And if we can get some tax revenue, so much the better. If not, we don't. You know, not every state is going to be Nevada and have to and, you know, generate the kind of business that would, you know, that they could basically run a lot of the state off of the gambling. So, you know, it was just my kind of reflections on um, states getting a little bit too much into the hype of gambling creates taxes. It's also, right. you know, getting questions from a lot of out-of-town journalists about this. And they're like, well, you know, this will definitely definitely deliver this much tax, won't it? I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, <laughs> if I knew that, I'd be running a hedge fund or something. <laughs> well, there's a – Dave, Dave is right about that. I think one of the problems with the current um, pitch for gambling is that, it, that as a tax savior – is that it almost it almost makes it um, certain that the resort model for, of casinos um, that really thrives here um, is is not going to be adapted in other places because the taxes are so high they can't afford to invest in the infrastructure, and so then they end up you know with you know these glorified slot barns as opposed to you know really well you know dramatic resorts with incredible design and you know, great, you know, outlets and stuff. I mean, they get some of it, but, you know, if if there was a, a, a open marketplace, a competitive marketplace with relatively low, stable tax regimes, you can be sure you'd have casino resorts on the coast of Florida and Southern California that would be a big threat to Las Vegas. So for Las Vegas, it's probably good that the states are doing this. They're They're just... Create, creating, you know, racetracks with slots and all kinds of, you know, sort of inferior kinds of gambling experiences that make people want to go to Las Vegas to see the, the better option. But, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate for the people who live in those places or who want to travel there that you can't go to the beach in Florida and stay at a, at a place like, you know, Bellagio or something like that. I think that would be a pretty nice uh, option. Yeah, I agree with what you said 100%. They get sort of stuck in this middling uh, middle ground where they don't get, you know, they don't get all the benefits, but they uh, could be a lot better. So I I agree. And um, there's Dave links to um, the numbers, I believe, the actual study in his post. So I'll put a link in the show notes so people can go and read that if they would like to. And there's actually a bunch of interesting comments on that post as well from some people. Um, not much to discuss, but uh, one other thing that, that Dave linked to that I really enjoyed this week was um, a story about why why you shouldn't think that making fake casino chips is a good idea. 
uh, I actually posted this on Twitter, and I got a bunch of responses. People were um, that thought it's an interesting topic, right? I mean, you look at those little at those little uh, chips, and you wonder. You think to yourself, maybe uh, you know these wouldn't be too hard to make. Um, turns out, not, not such a good idea. Uh, besides it being a felony in most states where their gaming is legal, uh, it uh, the, you know there's all kinds of other reasons why you wouldn't want to, despite the fact that it's just plain wrong. Um, but it was an interesting story, and I will post that link also because uh, they do a nice job of explaining some of the anti-counterfeiting uh, measures that casinos take to m- make sure that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Um, the last thing I want to talk about is Aria, and um, I was walking down the street the other day, and I tripped on a piece of paper, and lo and behold, there were some plans to the inside of Aria, and I was surprised, but um, it was fun to see. Um, but seriously, I uh, have seen some some documents that uh, – some design information on Aria and what we're going to be looking forward to. Um, and, you know, it, it, they, it looks impressive, and I'm even more excited uh, having seen some of this stuff. Um, it, it sounds like it's going to be a, a really interesting uh, casino f- floor with multiple levels and a lot of space. I mean, uh, the, from, from what I've seen, this casino looks like it's built for big-time Baccarat play. There's a lot of space devoted to um, high-end gaming plus, uh, you know, very easy access to the uh, – sort of uh, VIP check-in area. Um, Chuck, uh, you know, wh- what's your take on Aria at this point? Um, you know, we looked at some of this stuff together. What do you, what do you think? It is uh, huge. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a big, you know, I think, Hunter, you pretty much nailed it. There's, there's a big uh, high-end play component in terms of the way that the uh, casino floor is laid out. Uh, and it's heavily, heavily, heavily tilted towards Asian play. Uh, the Baccarat, uh, the, the 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 main, the private salons. There's eight of them, of course. You know, lucky number eight for 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 Chinese gamblers. Uh, they're surrounded by by uh, Asian themed restaurants, uh, which are. Basically, you know, 50 yards away from the VIP elevator, so you don't have to walk all that far. Okay, 50 yards is maybe a little small, but, uh, you know, you don't have to walk all that far from your VIP suite to stumble right into a high-limit Baccarat game. So, you know, uh, in addition to that, you know, there's multiple levels of the casino floor. There's, uh, like, three levels of entertainment whatnot, street level, casino level, promenade level. Uh, with different things on each one, uh, which I'm sure we'll be discussing uh, as to, as time sort of wears on. But but the thing about the Asian and the Baccarat gaming brings me back to uh, Jeff's point that he's been making for as long as we've been doing this podcast is what the future holds for Bellagio after uh, Aria opens. You know, how badly are they going to cannibalize this business? And it seems like they're looking to eat it, either eat Bellagio or eat Wynn or eat whoever is is serving uh, Asian gaming. Uh, And and, and I'm I'm really, 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 really looking forward to see how this whole thing is going to shake out over the next two years. Of Of course, you know, I'm psyched for December. I can't wait to go into that building. But I'm really excited to see how this thing is going to make the other teeth in the mouth sort of move around and who's going to get a cavity. Who's going to get a cavity next, you know? And, and I don't think things look really good for Bellagio. Before before MGM Grand bought Mirage Resorts, Mirage was the biggest player in the Baccarat market. So MGM went out and bought them, and they started with about – 50, 60% and build it, built themselves up to having a little more than two-thirds of the VIP Baccarat market um, with Venetian and um, Caesar's Palace sort of fighting and maybe a little bit Mandalay Bay fighting for the, the remainder. Um, but then when Wynn opened, he took 50% of the market, leaving MGM with you know probably a little over 25%, and there's other properties with little slivers. Now, 
you, I'm sure what MGM Mirage is hoping to do is recapture some of that win business. Now, the question is, if win has, let's say, 50 55%, if they can get a fourth of his business, they, that means they're almost certainly going to be pulling some from Bellagio. It's going to be a tough battle for them because Wynn um, has never uh, been beaten in the Bellagio game here in the city. Um, it's been quite some time. As Wynn has a casino open, he's winning in that market. And so, uh, you know, they may think that they can do well, and I'm sure they're hoping to, but I think you you guys are right on that this is going to be a battle royal um, and it, and and I'm sure they're going to do what they can to protect Bellagio, um, but you know I, I I don't know how it's going to shake out, but I, I I'm probably not betting against wins keeping in the top spot. Yeah, I mean they definitely have uh, a very impressive facility coming online, but uh, people will come and check it out once or twice. But it's really going to depend on what they can actually deliver if they can use it as leverage to take back a big slice of that of that market and some people may just you know they 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 are doing something a little bit different and they're packing in a lot of stuff into a medium sized parcel and some people may react negatively to that i mean there may be people that think it's the greatest thing ever um but it is different and so there's a little bit of a chance there and it may be a huge win but it may not it's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it, too, um, to the opening. It's going to be, I think, a lot of fun and um, be really interesting to see. My only lingering disappointment with regards to City Center is the um, sort of – is the restaurant lineup. Um, and it just – at least on paper, it seems fairly derivative. But um, yeah. I, I am willing to be impressed. I hope that I'm wrong about that, and there's some great stuff. Um, we, we shall see how they do. I'm sure it's going to be – it's going to be fun to check it out no matter what. I think uh, we will leave it at that. Um, thanks to everybody for being here. I want to go around the table. and You can tell people where they can find you. Dr. Dave, we'll start with you. You can find me at diescast.com and gaming.unlv.edu. Jeff Simpson, where can people track you down? Inbusinesslasvegas.com. And Mr. Chuck Monster, where can people find you? You can find me at Palms on October 17th at whatever time that that podcast of Palooza thing is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Four o'clock. And uh, Four o'clock. this show will be first. So, um, you know, be there. Uh, there will be giveaways. Oh, really? We're going to give you away? No, well, yeah. Okay. All right. Sure. I'll give myself away. <laughs> win, win dinner with Chuck. <laughs> right. You buy. <laughs> <laughs> you get the honor of taking Chuck out to dinner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you can find me at ratevegas.com. Um, thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.